0: Thanks again for joining us here in the CTO studio. I'm your host, Nikolai Walker. Today, our guest is Imad Georgi, and he is going to talk to us about the technical playbooks that he's written. We're going to cover today the second playbook, or the second quadrant of this technical playbook. And Imad, would you please explain to me what exactly that is? Yes, the technology playbook. Um, I, I don't know, i got to come up with a name for it, but um, the second one is Durable Architecture. So this is really the, the technology area, right? This is all about how do I know? So each quadrant is tied to a basic question, which actually has a very complicated answer and sometimes has no answer at all. The For durable architectures, how do I know that with every day and every decision I'm making at the code level, I'm improving the durability of the architecture? And so this is about the health of our architecture, our design, our technology choices, uh, the criteria that drives those choices, um, the architectural principles, like when do I buy, when do I build, what what does that look like? Um, This is about, you know, I I see this term now thrown around around boardrooms, which is unfortunate. Uh, What's technical debt? What does that mean? And I almost cringe saying that phrase. And, um, you know, it's so misused now. It's the new Agile. You know, it's so misused. I've heard it in the boardroom.
1: So people who have no idea, they know what debt is and they know what technical is. They translate it
0: as, my team is making bad decisions. How do they stop making bad decisions? That's really what the concern is.
1: When in fact you may be making good decisions, borrowing from the future. I mean, someone, someone once said to me that technical debt is like debt you borrow money so that you can get Steve Did you say that?
0: Yes. I said that. I'm <laughs> <Yes. laughs> like, what's the worst thing about debt, right? It's when you don't know what you owe or when you don't know what you, how you're gonna pay it back. And part of, you know, how can you sell second debt if you don't have a baseline? So part of the issue is like, you've gotta have a software design that you or an architecture that you're driving towards. It might be a year out, right? But then I have a baseline where I can look at a daily decision and say, if I make that decision today, is that going to get me closer to that vision or is that going to move me away from that vision? And so you start to kind of build a bit of a quantifiable framework around what does technical debt actually
1: look like. And so the first question to that is for both the durability of your architecture, which clearly will have some technical debt built into that, it's the it's the why, like what are we building towards, so we can measure the debt, the the price we're paying for extra time on architecture, maybe the additional investment we're making in infrastructure and DevOps, as a this is why we're doing it, not oh well this is best practice and we should always be doing things like this. That's right,
0: and it's played out in different ways. Like uh, I mean, unless best practice is relevant to what you're doing. It's just an industry thing.
1: When you are high on best practice and low on dollars.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you're there to make money ultimately for the company. (laughs) I think, you know, one of the common situations that this plays out to, and that's why I use the word durability, is, well, you know, we were under pressure. So you guys wanted something in four weeks. So we did it. And then three months later, the very same, when you have to rewrite that thing, the very same people that pressured you to deliver it are gonna say, why didn't you do it right the first time? So if you're gonna be held accountable one way or the other, you might as well invest some time in the durability of the solution. And you don't get to say, you know, well, I just did what you told me because if you believe you're a technology partner, like we were talking earlier, you believe you're strategic, you believe you have a seat at the table, you don't get to be a victim.
1: Yes, and so that is kind of a, this earlier part of our conversation alluded to is being that voice that goes to bat for for the durability. I mean, that is something that is, and I, and I love that you actually make it part of the, the quadrant, the the title, which is the durability, I think is often we substitute scalability for that and we think well, I need to scale at all cost. Uh, Customers are complaining about X. So with your, the first one of this quadrant was customer focus, taking that, building a durable architecture that can bring them, bring to your customers, not only what they need today, but what you anticipate they and hundred thousands more of them is gonna need, uh, you know, as you grow. But but that's very difficult sometimes as the message to the C-suite, which which is I know you all think we should have done X, but I'm telling you now if we do X, your bandwidth costs will go up to $150,000. Well,
0: what you just touched on is something that's not often done. Oftentimes, technology leader will expect their business counterparts to just understand it. Well, why don't they get this? You know, it's actually our responsibility to educate and coach our business partners on those risks. Okay, I get it. I get that we have to do this in two weeks, but get, tell you what, if, if we get another week, we could do X, Y, Z, and then we won't have to come back to the table, and you present those things. Now, sometimes you might go into it with eyes wide open, understanding the cost and the risk, and still make a decision to incur technical debt, but at least you're going through the exercise of understanding what that means. And not being surprised i always say that you don't rewrite a system by surprise it happens over time over thousands and thousands of daily decisions that build up and then all of a sudden one day you gotta rewrite it and to a business leader it's almost like what just happened we just woke up and now you tell me you have to rewrite the whole system what what happened here right but if you approach every situation with durability you're training them to think in that way, you're training them that you're gonna approach things in that way, they might not always say yes, but now they know you are carrying a serious responsibility for building that durability.
1: So when it comes to architecture and durability, are you safely in the column of, it's almost always a bad idea to rewrite stuff? I mean to re-architect platforms?
0: Yes, and there are, this, is, this could be a whole session by itself, um, I've been part of massive legacy rewrites um, as well. Um, there is inherent in that, I mean, I think in a minority of time, it's relevant, right? It's right, but it is riddled with risk. It is a high degree of failure. And invariably, there are people that, um, I- I'll say it this way, have a an arrogance about, oh, we can re- rewrite this in a year, you know, oh, we can, you know. But what they don't realize is, number one, that legacy system pays everybody salaries and has done so for many years. That legacy system has all sorts of business logic embedded over the years that there is no way you could replicate um, through a documented requirements process. I don't care how agile you are.
1: Yeah, it's like, hey, let's take what's worked for us and let's shit can it and let's just redo all of it. What? Who? Why are people still doing that? And you know what the replatforming is the extreme version I am going to go out on a limb and say versioning your releases is another way of kind of doing that piling up the releases we don't ship software on cd roms anymore dude so you can you can you can iteratively insert and make changes to your architecture that doesn't have to be this oh and I think that's a, a technique sometimes that founders or C-Suite circle jerk themselves towards, hey, let's just make that version so-and-so. And we'll pile everything, waterfall everything into that version. And then you fork the code and then a year later you still have forked code.
0: That's right. And here's, here's something else to think about I think will blow your mind. So the way I like to think about it when people approach it that way is when we think about ourselves and how companies treat us, we say, oh, well, they, you know, I don't have a voice. You know, I get treated with this. I get treated with that. I'm not uh, valued. I'm not this. We've all been in that position, right? That is exactly what you're doing to the legacy system. You're telling the legacy system, you don't have a value. You don't have a voice. I don't care about your level of experience. You're doing exactly what you don't want to be done to you as a human being. We've just entered the matrix.
1: <laughs> so when you think about the, so how does durability um, manifest in our leadership style? Uh, do we, cause we have to sell that as an expense to our C-suites, right?
0: Absolutely, because they're seeing that you're advocating for that too. And when you're not advocating for it, the message you send to your team is, I'm a victim. I will listen to you, team, and I will hear you, but actually I'm not gonna bring that hard conversation to the table. So we're only as good as right up to this point, and then we're not gonna be able to change anything after that, because the minute the CEO tells me something, I guess we're just gonna do whatever he wants. And then, and then you start to kind of question, well, why do I need a CTO then? If all we're doing is just gonna follow what the CEO does, why, do, why does the CEO need a CTO again? Like, <laughs> you know, and I understand I am not underestimating the pressures. I, I mean, I know all too well those pressures, but we need to be that voice. And you train the organization on that, right? You train them that I am the advocate for that voice.
1: I think in this quadrant, it's probably Uh, super helpful to translate the consequence in terms of dollars and cents.
0: Yes. In the same language that they understand. Absolutely believe in that. Or I've used like, I've used like a pain index.
1: The hundred grand you're going to spend on this is going to prevent a $10 million disaster.
0: Yep. And I've used different metrics like a pain index, like a score. It's like, oh, this is going to cost. (laughs) or time, money, costs, yeah, of some sort, or something that kind of shows them in their language um, as well. The other thing I think is powerful too is that in the few times you do get that decision approved, um, reinforce the hell out of it. So once you go and build something durable, now loop back and show your team and the executives, hey, you know we decided to take an extra two weeks to do this. Look at the benefits we got. Check it out. And people start to see, oh wow, okay, cool.
1: Like, and I, and I think that's probably where. Uh, just, I know your question was rhetorical, but for the for the CEO, CTO, uh, the C suite to know that there is a technical leader on the team that is fighting for the best interest of the business, in a healthy juxtaposition with a VP of engineering who is fighting for the quality and the durability of the code that if done well, will attract more A players to that, like, wow, I want to be on that team.
0: Exactly, I want to be on that team. Thanks again for joining us here in the CTO studio. And thank you to our guest, Imad Georgi, who gave us a really great breakdown on the technical playbook number two. The title of that is Durable Architecture. In the next two weeks, we will have uh, the technical playbook number three, title of that being Deliberate People Strategy. And then following that will be number four, Pragmatic Agile. Feel free to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And as always, we will see you next
1: time.